getting a bit of a complex having someone carry my table out for me all the time. So I helped. <laughs> Richard was born to a very prosperous family but orphaned at an early age in the early 1200s. But because of the neglect of a caretaker, his entire estate was lost. Somehow he was able to enter Oxford University, but was so poor he couldn't even buy the study gown. But he was a tireless student, loved theology, devoted to his Lord, and filled with selfless service to other people. Such a good student, he went on to the University of Paris for further studies and distinguished himself in almost every area, and then returned back to his beloved England. And he became what surprised many because of his achievements in academics, a small town parson or pastor, a role that he loved. But his abilities, his fame spread far and wide and soon he was asked to become the bishop of Chichester. And he accepted that rather elevated role in the church of that day. But for some reason, I don't know exactly why, the king opposed this position and denied him access because the king controlled all of the religious activities in the region. So Richard wandered for about two years, just teaching the flock, living where he could, getting help from whoever was generous. He wandered around in bare feet and in a humble way, was a faithful pastor to those individuals. Finally, the quarrel with the king was settled, and he was given the bishopric. He was given the palace that comes with it and preaching in the cathedral. But something strange happened. He lived in the palace as he had before, almost as a beggar. He wore rags for clothes, fasted often, and instead of enjoying a comfortable bed, ended up sleeping on the floor in the palace. But he entertained the poor lavishly and gave away almost everything he had. He even willed his Episcopal estate, which would have been fairly good for a bishop in that day, to widows, to the poor, to hospitals, and of course, to orphans. Now, you may not know Richard and his story, as I didn't, but you've probably heard these words, for he penned this prayer. Day by day, dear Lord of thee, three things I pray. To see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. And that prayer resonates with the writer of Hebrews, especially as we turn to the book of Hebrews and chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to Hebrews 3. If you don't have the scriptures with you, you can use a copy in uh, the pew rack in front of you, or simply watch on the screen as we'll have most of the verses together. So Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 starts out with another therefore. Therefore, holy brothers, and because the word is inclusive, we have and sisters, as many of the newer translations do. 
Those who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. Now, notice he mentions that they are holy brethren, which underscores the fact that these individuals indeed are believers. They're called of God to live a holy life. It reminds me of what we just read in chapter 2 and verse 10, that both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And when you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, holiness, which is a big term for simply being like Jesus, holiness is part of the relationship, a big part. And he, notice he mentions their heavenly calling, that they are called. I guess you can see it on the big screen, easier to see on the TV the underlying of the heavenly calling. That was the goal from chapter two. Pastor Doug just read that a moment ago. His goal is to bring many people to glory. And now he acknowledges that by saying, we have a heavenly calling. We have a calling that will take us to glory. It's a calling from God. It starts with him and it will take us to him forevermore. And because of that, we, we share with Christ. This word share is a beautiful word. It's found multiple times in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2, verse 14, Christ shared our humanity. He was fully human. And in chapter 3, verse 14, we won't get that far today, but believers share in the accomplishments of Christ, on the, both on the cross and his holy life. In chapter 6, we as believers share in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good? So Jesus shared with us, so we share with him and we share the spirit that God gives. But here's the kicker. <laughs> Chapter 12, we share in discipline. Probably no one was looking forward to that one. But that's part of it. In fact, that's a big part of the book of Hebrews. These people are suffering for their faith. And he wants them to know that they have a heavenly calling that takes them to Christ and eternal glory and the Holy Spirit to give them the power to live that holy life. And that involves tests and trials and discipline and battles. So we share in the discipline. Now, after all of that, he finally comes to the command. This is just setting the table, identifying who he's talking to. Here's the command. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. I think that's the theme of the book. Consider Christ or look to Christ. The word fixed here is a little deeper than just a quick glance. It's the idea of concentrating, of scanning something closely, of focusing. We think of riveting your attention on something. And that's what the word is here. Now, what were they looking, perhaps? What were they looking at at this place in time? Well, if they're like us, I think their eyes were on the problems. That's so easy to do. It's so easy to look around us or to look within us than to look above us, right? And this is a call to get your eyes 
back on Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ, not on the problems. What happened to Peter when he was walking on the water and he fixed his eyes on Jesus? Well, I already gave you the answer. He walked on the water. But when he took his eyes off of Christ and noticed the waves were pretty tumultuous, he began to sink. Or how about the 12 spies? Way back in the book of Numbers. And they were sent into the land of Canaan, not to decide if they should go, but to, to decide what route to take. And 10 came back with a bad report. Only Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it. Because God gave us a promise. Our eyes are on him. But the others had their eyes on the giants in the land. And we seem like grasshoppers in our sight and theirs. They're going to have us for lunch. When you get your eyes on the problems, that's when you are defeated and filled with disappointment. So don't fix your eyes on the problem. Fix your eyes on the problem solver. Fix your eyes on the sovereign God. This is going to be mentioned several times. Moses was able to stand because he saw him who was invisible. In chapter 12, we're able to run the race fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's both the author and finisher of our faith. You get your eyes off of Christ, and you're in, uh, you're in big trouble. And I think that's where too many of us are. Now, to be honest, today... Let's be more specific. This morning, I have my eyes on Christ. <laughs> what about at noon? I can easily get distracted between now and then. So it's a job to keep looking where you're supposed to look. I like what David said in Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. Wealth? Position? Power? He had all of those things. And they weren't satisfying. This one thing I, think, I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of God and to seek him in his temple. Robert Murray McShane is the one I've quoted often who said, a glance of faith may save, but it is the gaze of faith which sanctifies. The glance of faith may save you, but it's the gaze of faith that sanctifies you. You say, Pastor, I've heard that before. Good, you're doing it, right? Oh, you're not. That's a good reminder then. And if you've never heard that before, write it down because it's a fantastic quote. If we don't intently gaze upon the Savior, we're going to have our eyes elsewhere and defeat will be the result. A hurried peek at Jesus will never produce a holy life. It will never affect the radical transformation of character that you and I need. But when we look to Christ, we become like Christ. It's an amazing thing. You remember that hymn, Take Time to Be Holy? Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him you shall be. Thy friends, in thy conduct, his likeness will see. Others will know you've been with Christ. 
So why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, he goes on to say because he is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. This is the only time in the scripture where Jesus is called the apostle or an apostle. You've got the 12 apostles, right? And they were sent out by Christ. They're primary apostles. We don't have any other apostles like that in our day. There were secondary apostles sent out by the church. We read in Acts uh, chapter 13. But Jesus is the apostle sent out by God. An apostle is one who has been commissioned with a message. And he goes forth to proclaim that message. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. He, no one has seen God at every time, any time, but if you see Jesus, you've seen God. The word of Christ is the word of the Father. He becomes God's ambassador to us, possessed with all the authority of God himself because he is God. And he's sent to deliver a great message. And that's the way we started out the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke through the prophets in various ways, different times. But in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. His son, who is the exact representation of his likeness. So the message of salvation is delivered by Jesus the apostle, but the accomplishment of our salvation is done by Jesus the high priest. He is both the one who proclaims the message and the one who secures the message by his life and death. As an apostle, he's God's representative with us, among us. But as the high priest, he is our representative with God or before God. It's amazing that these two offices could come in one person and it only happens to the level that it does in Jesus Christ who is God. High priest is used 10 or 12 times in the book of Hebrews. It's going to be a, a major theme developed and we're just introduced to it just briefly but high priest is one who mediates between God and the people. And Jesus is perfect for this because he became fully human. And perfect for this because he is truly God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is it? The man Christ Jesus. And his humanity is, is always mentioned uh, in the scriptures, it is mentioned along with his deity. It may not be in every single passage, but he is the one mediator. In the old covenant, there were high priests, human high priests that were mediators and sacrifices that were given. Now we've got something better. The high priest is the sacrifice, and he's the only mediator between us and God. So that leads to us making a confession. Jesus is the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Now this is actually a technical, formal term for a statement, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know when someone is baptized, 
That's basically what they're doing. It's their public testimony. It's their public confession of faith. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Yes, I do. Have you trusted him? Yes, I have. Boom, into the water you go. And a public confession in that day that Jesus Christ is Lord might bring you before the magistrate, might take you into the synagogue courts ruled by the Sanhedrin or even the Gentile law courts because you have identified yourself with Jesus as God. And you had to pay a price. And these Jewish readers who are getting the letter written to the Hebrews who are Christians... They knew what it was to pay the price when they made the good confession of faith. You'll find this word again in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us hold firmly to the faith we confess. Or in chapter 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Hope and faith go hand in hand. And when you have hope, it's because you have faith. And when you have genuine faith, it results in beautiful hope. And so, we go on. Verse 2. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, notice the emphasis here is a comparison, a favorable comparison favorable comparison between Christ and Moses. So this actually brings us to our second point. First, there was a command, fix your eyes on Jesus. And the second command now, or, or the second movement in the text, is to compare. Compare Christ with Moses. And we have the greater sign there because Christ is greater than Moses. I love the way that the author does this because this Moses guy was well thought of. Think about the people that are getting the letter. They regarded Moses as perhaps the greatest person who ever lived. Maybe there's a bit of a, a race between him and Abraham. But Moses probably was regarded as the greatest Hebrew of all time. They regarded angels highly. That's why the writer compared Jesus with angels and said that he was better. He was better because he was God, but he was made lower than the angels when he became man, but then he became exalted above the angels at the right hand of the Father. And they also regarded Moses very highly. Think about it. His birth was so unusual and protected by divine providence when other Hebrew boys were being killed. He was educated in Pharaoh's household. <laughs> and then he becomes the deliverer of God's people. And the mediator through whom powerful deeds of, are done, miraculous deeds. The Egyptians called them the ten plagues. The Hebrews called them the ten wonders. Depends on your, which side you're on, right? This is amazing. And God delivered them through Moses. He spoke to the rock and water came out. And when Moses died, God had to hide the burial place. I think because of people would have come, exhumed the bones and worshipped them. They'd be in some box somewhere in every church around. And people would be worshiping Moses. Oh, they thought highly of Moses. Moses was faithful. Just like Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, Moses was faithful in all 
God's house. That's an interesting phrase. Let's underscore that. God's house. It's not talking about a literal house. It's not talking about the temple. It's talking about the people of God or even in a larger statement, the community of faith. Now in that time, if you read, when you read through the Old Testament, often Israel is called the house of God or the house of Israel. And so it's, it's speaking about the fact that God came when he came into this world His son Christ is building a house, but before that there was a house of faith, the Hebrews. And Moses was faithful to the one who appointed him over that house, just like Christ was faithful. So metaphorically, we're speaking about all the people of faith, Israel back then, and we'll see even the church today. But this is where the similarity ends, at least in the text. Because then our writer, in comparing Moses with Jesus, says something quite startling in verse 3. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. It's hard to grasp how startling that statement would be. But it shocked many of the Hebrews. Greater than angels? Yeah. Greater than Moses? Some of them even felt Moses was greater than angels. Yeah, Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, why is that? And he uses the analogy of a house. Literally, Jesus is worthy of more glory, greater glory. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Think of St. Paul's Cathedral. The architect is Sir Christopher Wren. And in that sense, he is both designer and builder. No one goes to St. Paul's Cathedral and says, look at the plumbing. I don't even know if there's plumbing in there. but uh, They don't say, who laid this tile in the corner? They're not talking about the construction of it. They're talking about the builder of it who had the vision, the architect, right? Frank Lloyd Wright is a famous architect. He has greater fame than the houses that were actually built or the people who actually built the house because it's a Frank Lloyd Wright home. When you go to Israel, there's Antonio Barluzzi. He's called the architect of Israel because in several places, like on the Mount of Beatitudes and in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the Mount of Olives, he has designed churches. And they're amazing. And he gets more honor than those who laid the pavement or dug the hole for the foundation. So Moses was faithful in his house, but Jesus has greater honor Because he's the builder. And look at the next verse, verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Underscore that phrase. God is the builder of everything. Wait a minute. I thought you just said in verse 3 that Jesus has more glory because he's the builder. That's right. And verse 4 says God is the builder of everything. That's right. See where he's going? Jesus is God. 
And you've got to understand that. <clears throat> or Good Friday means next to nothing. And Easter Sunday probably would have been a hoax if Jesus was not God. Oh, but he is. And God's the builder of everything. And we read in the scriptures, we've already read that Christ is the creator, the agent of creation. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all creating together. You see it in Genesis 1. You see it throughout the New Testament. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. God is the builder of everything. Is he building your life? Have you invited him to be the architect, the design-build approach? You know, sometimes to build, you've got to tear down. And then in its place, put something far greater. Well, Jesus deserves greater honor than Moses because he's the builder. But when you go to verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. So Moses is faithful as a servant. And by the way, Moses is a temporary servant. The word servant here is not the common word for slave. It's a high elevated servant, but nonetheless a servant. And he's a service in God's house. And his purpose was not to complete, but to, to testify as to what would come in the future. His role was that, to, to bear witness that something greater is coming. His work was preliminary. His work was predictive. That's exactly what it says at the beginning of Hebrews. And so you've got the Old Testament prophets, of which Moses was one. And God spoke through them as he did through Moses, but now the final word has come through Christ. Moses occupied a dignified place. It was not a menial position, but Christ is God. And so you come to verse 6. Notice this comparison. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Verse 6. Not a servant, but a son. He is elevated, not just, he's not just in the house, he's over the house. If we could go to verse 6. The son is in charge of everything. There's a change in preposition. Moses promises, Jesus fulfills. Moses loved God, Jesus is God. Moses was unwilling at first to follow God. Remember his hesitation? Jesus said, I've come to do your will. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. That quotation will be used in Hebrews. I've come to do your will, ever willing to do the Father's will. So the Son is greater than the servant. This is mind-boggling stuff if you're a first-century Jew because all you've been taught is what you have in the Old Testament and the greatness of Moses, and now you're beginning to see that those predictions were really pointing to someone else. And here he is. So Moses had a house, but it tells us in verse 6 
that we are God's house. We are actually his house. I guess that's in the next verse. Is it there? Yeah, we're, we're his house. And now you have the comparison between Israel of old and the believing community in the new covenant. It's going to be mentioned in chapter 10, verse 21, that believers in Jesus Christ are the house of God. There, there's a connection with Israel that all believers have, and there's a contrast between Israel and the church. You've got to be on your toes theologically as you're reading through the scripture. But the point is this, in the large sum of things, the house of God, that belongs to the people of faith. And we are his house. It says in 1 Corinthians that we are the temple of God. Don't you know that? And that God owns you because he created you. He bought you by redemption, so he owns you. And he owns you because he lives in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God. And you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. We're God's house. We're God's house individually. But the scriptures make it abundantly clear that we are God's house collectively. What a neat concept. In other words, God can be with us and he is in each individual Christian, but there is a sense in which God gathers with the people where two or three are gathered together. Think of the presence of God here, not just because uh, you know, God is with you alone, but you come and others come and God comes. That's why I don't want to miss church. When the people of God gather, I don't want to miss being with God. Have you seen that? That's what this verse is saying. We are the house of God. Raymond Brown, a scholar, says this epistle has little time for the spiritual individualist. I'm going to be a Christian hermit. I don't meet, need to meet with other people. Boy, if COVID taught us anything, it taught us this. We need one another, right? We do. I mean, sometimes you don't like it. Sometimes family gets on your nerves. But we need family. And we are God's house. If we hold firmly to our courage and our hope in which we boast or to the end. Now notice the third point. We go from command to comparison to this third point, continuance. This is a, another great theme in the whole book of Hebrews. And boy, this is a challenging one. It's a conditional clause. Already we talked about the danger to drift. When you get to chapter six, it will be abundantly clear. There are many temptations and pressures, sometimes insidious attacks which you and I face because we try to walk with Christ. And the sum of those attacks wears us down like a boxer in a long fight who in their first couple rounds had a bunch of energy, but by round eight, he's barely standing on his feet because he's taken so many punches. Sometimes we feel that way. And if we're not careful, we can be lured away from walking with Christ. Now let me just say this. 
This is the elephant in the room. Now, wait a minute. I thought you could never lose your salvation. But this verse clearly teaches it. And those who believe in the doctrine of losing your salvation, they come to this text of Scripture. They, they go to the book of Hebrews quite often because there are several conditional clauses. So how are we going to handle this? Well, the way you handle any challenge in Scripture is to get a good understanding of what the Scripture says on one particular subject from all the Bible and pull it together. Don't just try to interpret the Bible from one verse alone. Now, because we're going to see this again, we're not going to spend a ton of time out on it this morning, but let me simply tell you this. Our options seem to be this. I am saved if I keep holding on to Christ. Or, is there some way that Christ holds on to me? And I think the book of Hebrews teaches clearly when understood in the rest of the context of Scripture that holding on to Christ is a proof of genuine salvation. Now, if that didn't make any sense, let me say this. Every person who is genuinely saved can never be lost. If you're genuinely saved. Christ is holding on to you. You're part of his body. You're in his house. You've been washed by his blood. You're no longer condemned. If you are truly a believer, then you cannot be lost. But, and we'll see this in chapter 6, there are some who act like believers, but they don't continue on in the faith. Now, ultimately, only God knows the heart, right? But if you drift away from Christ, what makes you think you're a believer? Because genuine believers continue. F.F. Bruce put it this way, the conditional sentences of this epistle are worthy of special attention. Nowhere in the New Testament, more than here in Hebrews, do we find such repeated insistence on the fact that continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. There it is. It's the test of reality. Holding on to Christ, holding on to my profession doesn't save me. It doesn't complete my salvation. Salvation is all of God. It's all of grace. But my holding on proves that it's genuine. And again, God's the final judge because he only knows the heart. But all of us know some people who once were with us, but they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. But they went out to show that they're not really of us. Now, I'm not talking about someone going to another church and, you know, don't find them and say, you're lost. Pastor just said you're lost because you left south. No, no, no. I'm talking about leaving Christ. That's a quotation from 1 John. Continuance is the test of reality. Remember the soils when Jesus planted some seed and nothing went on the hard soil, but the shallow soil sprang up and it looked like there was life, but then the sun came and there was no fruit. That's what we're talking about. Some people, 
emotionally attach themselves to Christ and they're all in this until things get hard. You mean <laughs> the world's not going to love me? You mean uh, I've got to read my Bible? And you mean I've... Well, if you're born of Christ, you want to do these things. Continuance is the test of reality. Their hope was waning, their faith was shaking, and faith has an object, and faith has a prospect, hope. And both are wrapped up in the person of Christ. To continue in hope is therefore to display genuine reality in our faith. Your faith will be tested. And by God's grace, you need to continue on. I came across this story from Billy Graham, and I thought it was really good. Billy said years ago, I have a friend who, during the Depression, lost everything. But tenaciously, he held on to his faith. It was the only thing he had left. His faith was tested, but he stayed true. One day, he stopped to watch the men doing stonework on a huge church. A workman was chiseling a triangular piece of stone, and the man said, what are you doing with that? And the workman said, see that little opening way up there near the spire? I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit up there. You want to know why you're going through the trials? I, and I have the same questions. The trials that we are facing, why are we going through? Because God is shaping us down here so that we fit up there. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial, our life, by the Son of love. And we may trust him fully, all for us to do. And those who trust him wholly, what's the rest of it? Find him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah Hearts are fully blessed, finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. Keep your eyes on Christ in the midst of the trials. He's your apostle and high priest. You're part of his house, and he will never let you go. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we go through the book of Hebrews, we are constantly reminded of our own frailty and weakness and our failures and if we look at those we will lose our faith if that's where our hope is living a perfect or always consistent Christian life if that's our hope we're in big trouble but you've told us to fix our eyes on Jesus who's the apostle and high priest of our confession who has done for us what we cannot do and declares us righteous in his sight forevermore. And because of that, we not only say thank you, we say, Lord, let me serve you for the rest of my life. And the way we do that is with our eyes turned upon Christ. Let's take a moment just for private prayer, and I want to encourage you to look to Jesus this morning for whatever you need. Strength? Wisdom, forgiveness, salvation, look to Jesus.
with the eyes of faith, believe on Christ with an honest heart. And he will never turn you away. Let's pray. Again, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly. In Christ's name, amen.